Hi everyone, my name is Donnie and uh, I'm from Ox's Practical Defense. Today we're doing our episode of History in the News and we're going to talk about economics a little bit. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break from what we've been talking about with the Cold War era issues in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, obviously that's still an ongoing situation and I'm interested in talking more about that, but I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a break and talk about something else that's current in the news, which is our economy and uh, inflation in particular. So we're going to take a look at this from the or from the, the style of met of thought that uh, goes back to the Great Depression. And we're going to dig into the Great Depression and what caused it so that we can analyze all the different things about that and really make try to make the best sense we can of what was going on at the time and what is going on now and what the likeliness is of a imminent economic collapse. So we're going to go through all these different, uh, a couple of different ideas and thoughts about this. I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I can, but I'm also going to try to give you the uh, the important things that are necessary for you to know. Now, uh, I will tell you my primary source for this information is uh, from a book called FDR's Folly, and it is a book that is uh, very helpful because it goes through all of the uh, the years of FDR's presidency and talks about exactly what went on, what their economic policies were. And, uh, and it talks about how that affected the, uh, the Great Depression and all that. And it, so it follows his uh, FDR's entire presidency from 1933 until his death in 1945, right at the end of World War II. So it's a massive, uh, massively interesting subject and something that's very pertinent today. And but at the very end of this, we're also going to talk a little about crypto and upcoming currencies and things like that that are actually changing the world we live in now in a way that wasn't even possible back then. And so we're going to go, th- we're going to break all this uh, into pieces and try to understand this. So the first place we have to start is we have to start in 1927. So to explain the background here. Britain during World War One had left the gold standard, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the gold standard in just a minute. But basically, they left the gold standard in, in uh, during World War One so that they could fund their war efforts when they were uh, fighting against Germany. And the the reason that they do this is because a government doesn't have enough money on hand. What because essentially what a gold standard is is that it just means that the government is bound to the amount of money they're able to print the amount of money that is equal to the gold that is within their reserve. So if Britain has a certain amount of gold that is in their reserve, then they are only able to print as much money as they have in that reserve. If they print more money that is in that reserve, it devalues the currency itself. So we have to talk about, uh, in order to understand this, we have to break it down into two different categories. There's what's called fiat and there's commodity-backed currencies. So during this time, during World War Two or World War One, excuse me, uh, they were trying to uh, devalue the. They started to devalue the pound in order to create more money because what that does in the short term is it gives them better spending power. The problem is long term it makes the money worth less because there's more of it. Because remember, the economy is all about scarcity, demand, and supply, and so we have those those factors that play into this. So. When Britain was got, got off of the gold standard due to war costs, uh, they uh, devalued their currency. But in 1927, the British government got in contact with the Federal Reserve of the United States because they wanted to get back onto the gold standard, and they did not want to assume the gold standard at the current devalued rate. And so, let me put it this way. 
they basically got rid of the gold standard, um, which meant that they stopped backing their currency with heart with gold, and they started printing more and more and more currency. And then after they had spent all that money, and uh, they started, they didn't have the enough gold to equal the amount of money that they printed. So here's an analogy. I'll, I'll give an example. So if you had one ounce of gold on one side of a scale, and, and I'm using uh, these are these are figures that mean essentially nothing, but I'm just giving them to you as an example. So if you had one ounce of gold on one side of a scale, and then you put five dollars, a five dollar bill on the other, the government is there, and the government says, "Well, we need ten dollars." So what we're going to do is we're going to slice that that five dollar bill in half and create two quote new notes. You know, we're we're going to take this one and we're going to split it in half and we're going to turn this one bill into two. So we're going to have two bills, two five dollar bills instead of one. Now, instead of needing one five dollar bill to equal that one ounce of gold to make the weight even, you actually need two of them. So you need effectively ten dollars. To equal that one ounce of gold. Now there's more dollars, and so they hold less value per that gold. And so when the U.S. left the when the Britons left the gold standard, what they had done is effectively they made it so that they needed to print more money to equal an ounce of gold. Now the rate that it had been prior to World War One was uh, four dollars and eighty six cents per ounce of gold in uh, Britain. So their, their, uh, their pound was supported by the dollar. And so um, it, the transactions were done in dollars. And so the dollar, it was $4.86 per ounce of gold. Uh, and that was what was backing the British economy and the British pound. Now they wanted to resume that, but because they had printed so many pounds, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't, they couldn't actually resume at that rate because they didn't have enough gold in their uh, in their reserve. So re- what it required was Britain to work a deal with the Federal Reserve and to uh, to to make something work where they either had to reduce their gold, uh, or I'm sorry, reduce the money supply, so reduce the number of pounds in circulation, and or re- re- uh, improve improve their gold reserves get more gold and their gold reserves in addition to printing more gold or printing more money they had also reduced their gold reserves because they had been using it to pay the united states for their debt that was incurred in world war one so in july of 1927 the a, a deal was struck with a guy named benjamin strong who was the governor of the fed and uh, uh, and he was the Federal Reserve uh, of New York, and so he was uh, one of the primary governors. Uh, in the way that the Fed works, is they have a number of different governors, but you have a primary governor, and so this guy was at the top of the heap, and so he struck a deal with them. What he did was he agreed that uh, he would take United States Federal Reserve gold and purchase twelve million pounds, British pounds, and what that does is that uh, did a couple different things. First of all, because he was spending gold, he reduced the United States gold reserve. So he spent gold that was sitting in the gold reserve to actually. And, and when he spent that money, it increased Britain's gold reserves and also reduced the number of pounds that were in, uh, that were in uh, circulation. So he took 12 million pounds, but they were out there in the, uh, in, the, in the financial market and held on to it for the British government and then gave them uh, this gold in exchange so they could put that in there. Uh, what that does for, for Britain is it bolsters their currency because now there's less pounds in circulation and it, there is also more gold in the reserve. And so they were able to resume 
uh, trading, it, it kind of equalizes the standard. So basically, it effectively says uh, we're going to re reduce the money supply of pounds. We're going to make pounds more scarce. And then we're also going to give you more money to back the pound. And so when you're able to, so when you look at the, the scale, it brings it back into balance as far as how many pounds or how many dollars, because they were trading in dollars, uh, to uh, ounce of gold. And that allowed them to resume at the original rate. Now, the problem with this was that it caused some serious issues for the United States because now they had traded their gold, and when they traded their gold, that reduced the gold supply that the United States had to back their own dollar, to back the United States dollar, which was the foundation of the universal currency. And so the dollar suddenly became worth less because they had, uh, because they had less gold backing the dollar. On top of that... He then, uh, this, uh, this guy, um, Benjamin Strong, then reduced the discount rate. So the discount rate is the rate at which the Federal Reserve lends to uh, commercial banks. So banks get a separate interest rate uh, than uh, if you're like a, uh, just a person going applying for a personal loan. Because what's happening there is that the, the bank borrows the money from the Fed, and then the Fed, or I'm sorry, the, the local bank, then loans it to you at an increased rate, and they take the, the difference between the discount rate and what you pay. And so he took the uh, discount rate from 4 to 3%, and what that does is it increases the money supply because then it makes it cheaper for banks to borrow money. So banks borrow more money, and then they put it into the economy, and they make money off of that money that they got from the Fed. And so we increase the United States... Uh, the, the amount of dollars in the economy, and then also, at the same time, removed the, the money that was backing, the gold that was backing that dollar. So fiat currency is essentially just paper, and that's what the dollar is. It's just paper. It has no value in of itself. A commodity-backed currency has actual gold or another uh, limited supply item that backs it, and we'll talk more about how that affects cryptocurrencies in just a little bit. But this started or continued on uh, the, the process that eventually led to the Great Depression. Less gold plus more dollars equals the devaluation of the dollar. And so what this did was this also uh, created more and more problems because it discouraged low-return bonds and encouraged the stock market, which was already in the bubble. So if you have more dollars in the economy suddenly because we're inflating the dollar, what happens is people look at their checks and they go, oh, look at that. That's, that's interesting. There's, I, I have more money, so I'm going to invest it. And so they invest more money into the stock market and companies do the same thing. They go and they invest money into, uh, into increasing their stock price. And so then it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. More and more money gets put into the stock market. Prices keep rising. And then because prices keep rising, people keep putting more money into it. Now, the problem is, is that, and this is what was happening in the 20s, and this is why I suspect is happening now, is that there was a lot of overconfidence in the economy as it was. And so there was overconfidence. There was risky investments going on. And that, and that there were other, uh, other problems that I'm just going to discuss in just a minute here that also uh, continue to make this problem and compound it even worse. So by bailing out British, uh, the British pound and bailing out the British government for inflating their currency during World War I, the United States now took on that burden to a, to a large extent and started to make their own 
problems even worse. So that's that's the first part of this. Uh, it looks when you do something like this, and you did this trade for uh, for Benjamin Strong and for the people who were involved, it looked like a win-win scenario. It increased the value of the pound, and then it but it and then it continued to inflate uh, the New York Stock Exchange. So the the stock exchange continues going up, and the British pound increases the value of the pound increases because now they're backed by more gold than they were before. The problem with this was that. Uh, once the Fed realized that by inflating the currency, they were increasing the value of the stock market, they were perpetuating a market, what's called a market bubble. And the problem with bubbles is that they eventually pop, and it was becoming more and more imminent. And so the Fed, uh, in 1928 and 29, issued a series of increased uh, interest rates. So it, remember when I said that Benjamin reduced the discount rate from 4 to 3%. He then, uh, after actually it was after his death, he actually died in uh, 1929, uh, actually, sorry, 20, 1928 due to tuberculosis. Um, in the following governors of the Fed re- recognized that there was an upcoming problem, and so they started increasing the, the discount rate to try to get banks to pull back on lending and to remove uh, the uh, the some money from the economy. There was too much money that was in the that was entering the economy, and the velocity of the dollar was going too fast. And so it became a uh, a perpetuating cycle that was just about to per- burst, and they knew it. But it was unfortunately too little, too late. They went and uh, they and they increased these rates. But the problem with this is that it takes a while for this type of thing to. Uh, to take effect. So what happens is that you can inject a bunch of money, and then when people get a bunch of money, they spend it, right? It goes quickly. If you've ever <laughs> done any of your own personal finance or done your budget, you know as soon as you get your money, it seems like it disappears right out the door again. That's what happens. The government injects a bunch of money into the economy. People get it. They spend it. It's gone, and it starts circulating. and starts circulating. It starts circulating. It keeps going faster and faster and faster. If they try to increase the discount rates to remove some uh, to 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 slow down lending and to uh, and to decrease kind of to backpedal on the uh, on the influx of new cash into the economy, what happens is that it takes a while for that velocity to kind of slow down. And the problem was is that by 1929, when they introduced the new six percent discount rate, they were already about to have this massive collapse. And so they had the massive collapse that we now call the Great Depression in 1929. And then in the following years, the increased discount rate started to take effect and then just made it worse. So when they increased the discount rate and it slowed down lending, when the economy popped, when the bubble burst and the economy started to tank, they the increased discount rate then made it harder for people and for banks to borrow money from the government. And then when they made, and when it made it harder for the banks to borrow money from the government, it meant that they couldn't either uh, either settle with uh, customers who were trying to get their money out of the banks and or they couldn't create new loans and create new economic investments to perpetuate more economic growth. So it just became, uh, instead of going in this, uh, in this fashion where everything is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and growing quickly, it started to do the exact opposite. It started to go into uh, contractionary policy. And so everything started falling apart 
between that time, 1929 to 1933. And in just those four years, the stock market fell by a third. And that's something that's incredible because we watched like what happened uh, just a couple years ago when we had that crash and at the very beginning of COVID stuff. And, and we saw that, uh, that the stock market took a huge dive and all that, but that was basically artificial. It was it was pushed in because of all these forced sh- uh, shutdowns and things. What happened in the Great Depression was completely was organic. Even though there were some ways that we could have, in hindsight, fixed the problem rather than made it worse, like what the Fed did, um, it was built on some sort of organic uh, foundation at first. And so, the type of economic collapse that we saw in 2020. And is is not the type of thing that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is something that's much longer lasting and is organic and then causes a long time to come back, whereas we saw it come back in just a few months after the collapse a couple of years ago. So that's the first reason that we have uh, the first thing that caused the Great Depression. Uh, it was the it's not necessarily that there was the the type of investment or or anything like that. It was more so the the monetary policy of the federal government, as they were trying to uh, bolster the British pound, they overextended themselves, put more money in the economy that was necessary, and then reduced our the value of the dollar. And by doing that, they caused this continual investment that eventually burst as the economy started to fall apart. So that's the first part of this. The second part of this is we have to look at the fractional bank reserves. Now, this sounds uh, super fancy, but this is actually a really short piece. <laughs> Basically, what happened uh, is that uh, up until all the way through up in uh, the 20s and prior to that, um, there were a lot of small branch banks. And uh, the banks themselves were, it was much easier to open them back then than it is now. And uh, the type of financing that was is required to open a bank now is is very significant, whereas back then, it was actually not quite as uh, as uh, carefully planned as it is nowadays. So uh, I'm, uh, the a quote here is from Jesse Jones of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and the quote says, "quote Only 12% of banks at the time had a capitalization above $100,000, and 40% were village establishments started with less than $25,000." Now, keep in mind, because of inflation, $25,000 is a lot more then than it is now. But it's still not nearly enough to uh, have an effective amount of money uh, to actually carry a uh, carry the balances and carry uh, accounts for uh, many people in an area. And so you had a bunch of small banks that were, uh, that were uh, being started without significant capital behind them. And so they would lend a bunch of money and lend money that they didn't have. They would basically take in money and deposits, lend that money, and then they would have nothing to uh, nothing sitting in the bank per se or in their vault that was able to cover everything that they were lending and everything that they were taking in. It was basically a thing where you get the cash in, lend it, get the cash in, lend it, and then when you got payments from the lending, then they would use that money to pay somebody if they wanted to take the money out of their account. But you didn't, you couldn't handle everybody doing it once. Kind of a Ponzi scheme, really, um, where certain people putting money in is, is the money that's being paid to other people. And that's, that's kind of how it worked. Now, the problem with that is that when you're dealing with a situation where you have an economic downturn, these banks 
uh, if there's a rush on the bank or if their money people are trying to pull their money out of the bank, the bank doesn't have enough money in their vault to pay everybody. And so then the bank has to go uh, bankrupt and runs out of cash. Now, it, this was all actually made even worse by the banks themselves. So during the, uh, during the, the ensuing decades, uh, there had become, become various laws called unit, unit, <laughs> unit banking laws uh, that uh, were in various different states. So, um, and most of the states where unit banking was enforced were the ones that also saw the worst downturns and uh, the most bank closures. Now, b unit banking was this, simply stated. If there was a local bank in a city that was owned by somebody who was also local, the city would pass a unit banking law that would prevent a bigger bank from opening branches in the area. So, for instance, I own Green Tree National Bank, whatever, or Green Tree whatever bank for this area, right? And uh, then J.P. Morgan Chase wants to come in and open a branch in my area, but they can't do that because they're being barred by law from opening a branch. Now, what that did was that would bolster the uh, through this type of uh, this type of stimulate stimulation, it would cause the, the the small banks to get a good foothold in the areas because they were the only show in town. The problem was is that all of their investments and all of their uh, their all of their banking, all their people who are giving them money are all from one area because they can't diversify either because there's other banks that also have other unit banking laws, and so they can't move into other cities either. So they have their territory, but then they can't expand. And so all their investments are held by a small group. So, for instance, if you have a, uh, a group, an area, say, where they, uh, the primary economy is in farming. Now, the farmers deposit money into the bank, and then the, uh, then the bank goes and loans the money to other farmers who need to buy different equipment whatsoever. Now, you have a problem where the economy takes a downturn or uh, you have a bad season and they, uh, the farmers want to withdraw their money and or the farmers who borrowed the money can't pay it back. The bank is now caught in a, in a situation where they can't pay out enough money to cover what they loaned and they can't get the money they loaned back. And so they have to close. Now, that was one of the things that was happening during the Great Depression, and actually, it wasn't that terribly unusual for banks to be closing prior to that. Um, and uh, but it made the situation much worse because now you have this type of situation where you have a rush on the banks. Everybody's trying to get every bit cent they can out, but they can't access the money that they put in, and the bank doesn't have it, so everybody is stuck. So that's what was happening, and that's what fractional bank reserves created. Fractional bank reserves being that uh, fractional means that they don't hold uh, a bank reserve that's enough to pay out to everyone at any given moment. They only have a part of that. And so 90% uh, of bank failures during the Great Depression were in small towns, and that's because of all of these different laws. So that's the second reason. The third reason was actually the solution. <laughs> so the, the, the solution, and this is what... FDR's folly primarily spends most of its, its time on is that the solution by the government during the Great Depression and after it was, well, to bolster the economy, we should stick more money into it. 
So we should take and we should uh, we're going to further inflate the dollar um, by uh, by creating all of these alphabet soup places, and then we're going to hire people to do jobs, and we're going to pay out all this money, all of it backed by inflated currency in order to bolster the economy. So FDR um, took us off of the uh, the gold standard. Now, there is some debate on this. Uh, some say that it wasn't until Nixon that we truly left the gold standard. But um, FDR, actually in 1933, a lot of people don't know this, actually made it un illegal for people, for Americans, to actually own gold. They were required to turn it into the Federal Reserve because the Fed was going off of the gold standard, and so they were, and so he made it uh, untenable for people to own gold or to trade in it, so that everybody would have to instead use a fiat currency like the dollar. So he said, basically, the idea was, we're going to take away all everybody's gold and force them to trade with the dollar because the dollar has become its own, its own uh, supply, and it's going to become its own form of uh, commodity. So. We're going to make this fiat currency that is not limited. We can print as much of it as we want, but we're no longer going to back it with gold. And so, and we don't want people to favor gold over our currency. So we're just going to take all the gold away. And there's some pretty crazy stories that happened out of this. Um, in FDR's folly, he actually talks about a guy who uh, invested uh, a significant amount of gold in uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and a couple of days before the deadline to uh, to turn all of your gold into the government, uh, the guy actually went to the Chase Bank and tried to withdraw his gold, but Chase wouldn't give it to him, and then held it past the deadline, the federal deadline. And then when the guy tried to sue Chase to get his gold. He was ruled against by a federal judge who was partial to FDR, and uh, and and so he ended up having all of his gold taken, which was a significant amount of money, and then and he lost everything in the process, and that was because FDR was uh, made it illegal for people to have their own gold, and the government what they were doing is he set a certain price which was just over twenty dollars, and he said I'm gonna pay just over twenty dollars per ounce of gold. And uh, and you're gonna get fiat currency. You're gonna get dollars in ex for the the gold that we're forcing you to give us, essentially. And so it worked in that type of uh, of manner. So the government spending that was then perpetuated by FDR uh, created a number of different uh, organizations that are still around today. Now he actually created over 15 organizations just in the first hundred days of his first presidency in 1933. Um, but we're just going to name a few of the ones that are still and they're still around today. Well, some of them are. These are seven that are still around today: um, the Social Security Board, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Housing Administration, the Federal Communication Commission, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Farm Credit Administration, and the Tennessee Valley Authority. All seven of those are uh, are still active today, and they were originally created by FDR. Um, he also created a uh, a new method of uh, investment into the economy, well, somewhat new, um, but it was an, an idea that basically that that was behind that idea of if we jump and and inject money into the economy, then it will help us to improve it and uh, and improve the velocity of the dollar. And he created works programs, including the Civilian Corpor Conservation Corporation. The uh, the Federal Emergency Relief Act, the Civil Works Admi Association, and the Works Progress Administration. 
Now, there's some really interesting uh, documentation in FDR's folly. He talks about how uh, the funding that was with uh, that was uh, being given out during these programs actually favored states that didn't need it, and that's because they were states that were likely to vote for FDR. And so FDR was dumping money, and this is actually provable now, was dumping money into states that, uh, that were likely to vote for him and giving it to communities that were likely to vote for him and then was withholding it from states like Missouri and other states that were Dust Bowl states that actually needed it. And, uh, and, that included, and that was reflected in the different pay scales that were given to individuals in those states for doing the same work for the government. So all of this, um, besides creating ridiculous a level of administrative bureaucracy through all of his different alphabet programs, and then also in sticking a bunch of money into the economy by removing us off the gold standard and sticking uh, inflated money into the pockets of Americans, he created this situation where, yes, the, the money policy somewhat worked in that it achieved its goal of increasing the dollar in circulation, but the problem was the dollar was worth less, and so you had this situation that self-perpetuated and has continued to self-perpetuate to today. So the modern connection to all of this uh, can be summarized in a couple of different things. So the current gold price as of April 12, 2022 is $1,971.36. Now think about that. It, back it, prior to World War One, it was worth uh, significantly less. And I actually have a quote here. This is uh, from the Cobden Center, and this is actually an older quote. This is from 2010. So the the I just told you the what the current ounce of gold is worth uh, as of today. Um, it's going to be using factors from 2010, and you'll see how bad the last decade has been uh, in this meth in this in this modern epoch of our times. So, quote. One ounce of gold today is worth $1,093.40, and one twentieth of an ounce, therefore, is $54.67. But the dollar pre-World War I was just a name in the USA for one twentieth of an ounce of gold. So, so what would have cost $1 before World War I would cost $54.67 today? The dollar has lost its purchasing power. In fact, it has lost 98.17% of its purchasing power in 100 years. One dollar today should buy something like a single person's weekly food shop, not a single daily newspaper. So, so consider that for a moment. Uh, he's talking about mathematic breakdown here. Uh, the reason why the dollar was called a dollar was because it was originally supposed to be a one dollar was equal to one twentieth of an ounce of gold. That was what it was supposed to be. Now it costs uh, at that time it cost one thousand ninety three dollars and forty cents to purchase one ounce of gold. So it goes from uh, being twenty dollars uh, twenty dollars to an ounce of gold to over a thousand. And now today, with our numbers, it's almost twice that. It's almost $2,000 for one ounce of gold because our money is becoming worth nothing. And so the purchasing power that's, that's changed went, went from being a 1/20th of an ounce of gold to now it's 98.17% less in 2010 uh, in just 100 years. So you can follow that, that dramatic decline from uh, from FDR's point at which he removed us from the gold standard 
all the way to the present and see that how that has changed our money. Now you'll see, you know, we always make the joke about the the, uh, the older guy going, you know, back in my day, I could pay 25 cents for a cup of coffee and now it costs $5. And he's right. It's because of FDR and because of these policies and because the government keeps spending money that they don't have and then self-financing it with debt. So here's the thing we just saw. We saw these stimulus checks. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. We saw these stimulus checks where everybody's being sent all this money, right? I I received a couple of these checks myself. And what happens is that when you do that, the way that the government is funding it is by borrowing money. And I mentioned uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, the the in 2020 and 2021, it's the first time ever that the government's uh, the government's debt increase has outweighed the increase in GDP by over 20%. So our gross domestic product, uh, the amount of product that we are exporting and creating is not equal to how much debt we are incurring. That's a failing business strategy and it's a failing national strategy. We have this this time where, we see, where we're seeing this level of, of discrepancy that has literally never happened before, even in the Great Depression. The other thing we got to think about is that we're in an artificial market bubble. So when you have all that money, that $1,400, that $600 that we got in the last couple of years, um, for a lot of people, they went out and they purchased something with it. <laughs> for me, I, uh, I, I kind of held on to it and then I invested it. When you do that sort of thing and you invest that money or you go and you spend it somewhere who is then going to continue putting it back into the money stream, what that does is that that it artificially inflates the market. Right now, we are at all we have we have seen all time market highs, particularly in the uh, in the twenty sixteen to twenty twenty era. We saw re, um, stock market breaking records over and over and over and over and over and over again, multiple times over. And then we ingest all this money into the economy, and it has continued to to uh, on paper grow. But now, in the early months of this year, we've seen it t- start to turn the other way. And we're starting to see it, it start to descend. And my fear is that it's going to continue to perpetuate and go faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. That is the, the worst case scenario. And it's kind of the inevitable outcome of inflating your currency. Eventually, it becomes worth nothing. Now, I don't think we're there yet because, uh, we, because the dollar is very secure uh, in that it is the universal world policy uh, it's it's the international currency of trade, and so because of that, all the other countries in the world also are, have a vested interest in not seeing the dollar collapse. But uh, the uh, there's a number of different things we could discuss with that having to do with China. But for right now, that's as deep as we'll go on it. Now uh, the the last thing, uh, last two things I was thinking about is that the Fed increased the interest rates uh, just this last month in March uh, by 0.25%. And uh, all the all, all the insiders from uh, a couple of different news networks have said that it's likely that they're going to increase it by another quarter of a percent uh, in all the following meetings throughout the rest of this year, which is uh, five or six meetings. I have to double check on how many meetings it is. But um, overall, we're looking at probably at, at, a, at a fairly a hefty increase in uh, interest rates uh, by the Fed in the next two years. And I think that is going to end up very similar to how it did during the Great Depression, where the increased interest rates were too little, too late, and they actually made everything worse. I think that's a likely thing that could happen because of the delay before they actually take effect. 
And then we have this major infrastructure bill that we just passed at the end of 2021 with uh, with Biden. He signed a uh, over one trillion dollar infrastructure, whatever that means, plan. And uh, then uh, just this last month, he started saying that they are proposing new plans uh, to reduce the national deficit or debt uh, the national debt, I should say. Um, by $1 trillion in the next decade. So we're going to spend a trillion dollars at the end of December. And then two, and then you know, three or four months later, we're going to turn around and say, well, in the next decade, we'll pay that off. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that the United States' current national debt is close to $30.1 trillion. So if you're going to pay off one-thirtieth of your credit card bill, but in that terms, <laughs> in the next decade, think about how much interest you're accruing in the meantime. It's going to outweigh that 30th of your of your uh, credit over time. So there's a lot of things that we that we have to consider when we're looking at this. And the last thing I wanted to discuss was just uh, just talking a little about a hopeful thought, which is crypto. This has been kind of a one of those discussions where it seems like it's definitely a downer. But I want to talk a little bit about crypto and the emerging market with that. So uh, one thing that we're seeing is this emergence of this new type of currency that is not a fiat currency. It's actually closer to a commodity-based currency, but it's a commodity that's not something that we pull out of the ground. So we have gold, right? And that was always the the primary. uh, Precious metals were the primary standard by which we've always made our economy over the last however long the world has been around. But now what we have is we have these cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, for example. Uh, I saw an article the other day that said that there's only 2 million Bitcoins yet that have not yet been discovered. So uh, there's a big process that goes into mining coins and all that stuff and it becomes pretty perpetually difficult, more difficult to um, mine more coins. But there's a set number of Bitcoins. And so in 100 years or so, I can't remember when the last day was that they said the last one will be mined, likely, uh, eventually there will be a set number of Bitcoins in circulation and there will be no, uh, there'll be, there'll be no more to be made. That means that the Bitcoin will hold a solid value. It's always going to retain a, a constant uh, value and it can't be inflated by a government who decides they want to spend more money. It means you have to be honest with your accounts. Now, there's also a whole bunch of different uh, different cryptocurrencies aside from this that use many different versions of uh, of different algorithms and different methods of using a blockchain and uh, and different ways of creating new coins. And uh, we have some other a different type of cryptocurrency that's becoming more popular now called stablecoin, which is actually attached to the dollar. So um, as the uh, and it's a, a great inflation hedge because as the dollar becomes worth less. They actually create more coins to equal uh, the 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 value of the dollar, and so they're able to you're able to actually increase your value by the loss of the dollar, and uh, and so there's various different ways you can that you can get into the crypto market, but that is one of those things that uh, cannot be inflated. It's not controlled by governments, and it can be and it is quickly becoming uh, adopted and accepted in international markets as well as in uh, as in. Uh, just day-to-day stuff. So uh, you can buy a Tesla with Bitcoin, which is a very interesting thing. Of course, of all companies, Tesla would be the first one to accept Bitcoin. Now, uh, the the 
the situation in Russia and Ukraine is also connected to this because uh, one thing we've seen in the last uh, two months, uh, Russia's infrastructure has been, their financial infrastructure has been completely shut down through sanctions by U.S.-based banks. So um, you have United States-based banks uh, like uh, Visa and MasterCard, credit card processors, Visa, MasterCard, and several other um, major organizations that have completely stopped taking transactions in Russia in its entirety. What that does is that causes the, uh, the Russian economy, you can't spend money. Your money has effectively become worthless. And so they can't spend it. So the only people who have money now and are able to trade in Russia are those who already had reserves of crypto like Bitcoin and other, uh, other commodities that don't require a credit card processor or require somebody to transfer the funds. With Bitcoin and other currencies, you're able to send it peer-to-peer -peer with no middleman. And so what that has allowed some of the Russians to be able to do is to use that as their form of trade in the meantime while they rebuild the ruble. So... Lots of many, many, many different things that are going on, and I really appreciate you guys for listening. I hope this was somewhat interesting and enlightening. And uh, and one thing I'd like to mention is that there is a um, a crypto investing company called Macra, and they're actually uh, it's actually owned by uh, Betterment, which is the company that I use for uh, most of my stocks and bonds uh, investments. And they, uh, Macra is a crypto investing platform that does what they call baskets. It's basically a diversified portfolio of crypto. So if you put in, uh, if you put in money into Macra, what they do is they go and they will break it down and they'll invest it into uh, a bunch of different cryptocurrencies, Dogecoin, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, a bunch of other ones that I've never heard of. And that way you get diversification across many different coins so even if one takes a dive the other ones tend to bolster your portfolio and balance it out a little bit and then you can also go and invest in other uh, metaverse based currencies and things like that that are far beyond the scope of this but you can basically get on macro and start getting invested in the currency of the future and we've seen bitcoin itself being the most popular has uh, increased in value uh, everything from being $2,000 a coin just a few years ago to now where our coins are, are varying between thirty-eight to over $40,000. So if you were one of those people who invested when the coins were worth $2,000, you have made a ridiculous amount of money. And in the future, I can only anticipate it continuing to go up as the adoption and the value of the coins becomes recognized by more and more people. So I would encourage you to go and uh, join Macra. Uh, if you do that, uh, you can use the link that I'm going to put in the description of the podcast where you can get $20 of, of uh, crypto uh, and put into your crypto portfolio by Macra just by starting to investing in the, uh, through them. It's the easiest way. You don't have to decide what you buy. You They basically give you a, a pre, uh, a design package that's specifically for you. So you just get on there and, uh, and enter your information, tell them what your goals are, and then they will recommend the portfolio and they do all the management and everything for you. And it's at a very, uh, it's very inexpensive and you'll get $20 in your portfolio just by using the link that I'm including in the description. I should say that they are not a sponsor. We are not affiliated with them at all either myself personally or Ox's Practical Defense. We have no uh, prearranged agreement with them. Uh, this is just using my shareable link that I'm giving out to everybody because it is a, a really cool investment opportunity and something that I see as being a hedge against the, uh, the instability of our current economy as it is. So I hope you enjoy. hope you check out Macara. And then I will see you guys on an upcoming episode. Thank you so much.
History in the News is a podcast by Ox's Practical Defense. What our goal is, is to help people to gain a practical defensive mindset that applies to everything in your life. Not just physical defense, but also the defensive thought processes about how you go about your investments, how you uh, per- and perpetuate your day-to-day life. And so what we do is we work with people to help them uh, build their worldview. And uh, we do that through both podcasts and information like this, but also through other courses and classes that we provide through our website, oxus.llc. You can get on there and uh, we run uh, concealed carry classes as well as women's training and other programs and personalized private classes as well for various clients. And we also work with organizations such as churches and businesses to plan their security training, build security teams, and to ensure that they are in compliance with insurance standards. So contact us if you uh, have any questions about any of those things. You can do that through our website, oxus.llc. Um, you can also find us on Facebook at oxusllc or on Instagram at oxus.practical.defense. Thank you guys so much. Have a good day.